Welcome back to The Spark. I'm Scott Lamar. History was made last week when Democratic State Representative Joanna McClinton of Philadelphia was elected Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. Representative McClinton became the first woman and first woman of color to become Speaker in the more than 200-year history of the legislative body. Speaker McClinton takes over the most powerful position in the House when Democrats have a one-vote majority and at a time when partisanship flourishes. Speaker Joanna McClinton joins us on The Spark today. Madam Speaker, welcome to the program. So glad to be here. Thanks so much, Scott. Well, first of all, congratulations. And uh, uh, for more than two centuries, as I mentioned, this position has been held by a man, and with the exception of one period when Kay Leroy Irvis was Speaker, by a white man. You're a pioneer. What are your thoughts about the road that you've traveled to become speaker? Well, understand that my road is a reflection of my entire caucus. I am truly grateful and humbled to my caucus to making me a pioneer, putting me in the history books for the time, and just most importantly, seeing the opportunity that we have in this legislative session to do the good work of Pennsylvania. Let's look back at that history a little bit. Why do you think it took so long for a woman to become Speaker of the Pennsylvania House? Well, when our House, uh, which is the oldest contiguous legislative body, to be clear, uh, when our House was started, women could not vote. (laughs) So we have, you know, the first hundred, uh, almost 70 years, 170 years where women did not have access to the ballot. And then once women uh, were able to have access to the ballot in the first election post the 19th Amendment, eight women joined the Pennsylvania House. Uh, Just about uh, 10 years after that, the first African-American woman joined the Pennsylvania House in the 1930s. Um, But it's just reflective of the fact that we have had a male-dominated legislature um, for a long time. You were elected to your seat from Philadelphia and Delaware County in 2015. Wasn't that long ago? How did you rise through the ranks so quickly? So rising through the ranks, once again, has to go to my colleagues. I did not uh, run (laughs) with the intent of you know, becoming Speaker of the House, I ran uh, to let my neighbors know that I'd been an advocate for community my entire life in one way or another. I'd always been serving the public in my legal profession. I was a public defender for a very long time, almost 10 years. And I then took a job working for my state senator in my community that I serve now, uh, where I learned, you know, about the legislative process, how uh, policy is crafted, how budgets get done. Um, And it was a very exciting job. Uh, And there was a vacancy in my community a few years into that job. And I asked my neighbors, you know, to give me the opportunity to advocate for them, like I'd advocated for clients back in court, like I'd advocated for children in my youth ministry at my home church. Um, And I was, you know, very grateful to make it through that special election Uh, Then you fast forward a few years later, I ran to become caucus chair uh, to run our caucus meetings. And then two years after that, I ran to become leader. Um, And once again, none of these positions occur without my colleagues from every part of the state um, giving me their opportunity and their vote of confidence. You just mentioned that the reason you ran in the first place is hearing from your neighbors and the, the, the issues that were important to your neighbors. You're from Philadelphia. 
Much of the rest of the state doesn't see that as a good thing necessarily, thinking that Philadelphia's needs are much different than the rural counties especially. How do you govern with the entire state's best interest in mind? So essentially what I found out not too long once I became a member of the House is some of Philadelphia needs are not unique to Philadelphia. They are unique to smaller cities like Allentown, like Reading, um, of course, you know, a much bigger city, but not as big as Philly, Pittsburgh. Um, but I also found when it comes to things like school funding, uh, rural Pennsylvania has as many needs and is left behind and without fully funding our schools fairly, just as much as Philadelphia and even my neighboring district where I serve, William Penn School District in Delaware County. So we have more in common than people recognize. A lot of times people think, oh, the big city, you have public transportation, you have hospitals everywhere, but we also have health disparities. It's very interesting. The same issues that drive uh, rural Pennsylvania voters to the pallet are very similar issues that my constituents struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. But there is that perception in rural Pennsylvania that Philadelphia's needs is different, and there may be some mistrust of a speaker from Philadelphia. How do you get the point across that you do have some commonalities? So one of the main things that I'm going to be doing throughout the session is visiting members in their district to learn firsthand about their needs, about what it is that they have as priorities in this legislative session, especially when you look at the fact that we have 52 new members uh, in both caucuses and so many of our uh, new members in their first term they have a lot of things that they want to accomplish. So I look forward to, you know, learning from them just as much as I look forward to spending time in their districts, just as much as I look forward to finding out how our uh, needs are rather similar and really building the trust. You know, trust is something that's gained and earned. So what kind of speaker will you be? So my goal is to really be a speaker that uh, brings decorum to the House in a way that, you know, Pennsylvanians are proud. The House is the people's house, so it's it's often very rowdy. Uh, neighbors, constituents, voters, they can, if they choose to listen in, <laughs> they can hear, you know, some of the, the, the loud boos or the, the collective sighs. Um, but one thing that's concerned me in the short time that I've been in the House is that there are many times when the institution as a whole isn't held in the highest regard by some of the ways people personalize arguments on the floor of the house. So I look forward to being a speaker, you know, for the entire chamber that reflects the, the historical nature of our institution and the things we've been able to accomplish in the past. And most importantly, provides the uh, example so that fair decisions are made when we're in debate and folks know, you know, that this isn't a partisan post. It's not like my last job where I was the Democratic floor leader. This is a job where it's for the institution. Uh, I'm reading a quote from the speech that you made when uh, you were elected last week. You said that uh, we need to focus on the issues that unite lawmakers in both parties while building cooperation and professionalism rather than picking partisan fights. There are a lot of speakers over the years who have talked about bipartisanship, especially in recent years. Sometimes it doesn't end that way or 
it, it doesn't stay that way very uh, and kind of changes pretty quickly. So how do you maintain bipartisanship? How do you seek bipartisanship? What do you do? So you seek it by getting to know people, taking the time to hear what their concerns are, and most importantly, to allow them to bring you up to speed with, with why they ran in the first place, what is going on in their part of the state that led them to even you know seek this opportunity. I mean, we have to really develop uh, relationships off the floor so that when we get to the floor, uh, we can be a, in the best uh, version of ourselves and really showing the type of decorum or professionalism that the institution deserves. You know, what you just described, I have heard so often over the years, is that legislators don't get together off the floor, that they used to go out to dinner or maybe have a few drinks. Is that what you're suggesting? So I'm not suggesting social activities at night. I think that there's a lot of uh, scheduling challenges from time to time with having events at night. But I do suggest that we uh, take time uh, when it's convenient. And for some, that's like breakfast meetings. It's not necessarily uh, events in the evening so that you can really uh, just sit down um, with a fresh start and, and really build a conversation. And I will be, uh, you know, not doing these events in the public. So I don't want to get too far into it, but I do plan um, to really extend myself to whomever has the time so that we can, whether it's a cup of coffee uh, or tea or something like that, so that we can just spend time uh, getting to know each other. We have a lot of work to do this session. And we have, as everyone notes all the time, a very, very close margin. And the way uh, even the map is for the next uh, eight years, it's it's likely going to always be just how it is, you know, one or two votes either direction. So I think it's incumbent on us that while we have this opportunity, and certainly while I'm the speaker, that I get the opportunity to set a new tone. All right, let's talk about that slim majority. In fact, it is a one-vote majority for Democrats. How do you navigate a legislature with that slim of a margin? So you have to, once again, uh, see what are the drivers, what are the issues where we have agreement. We have a very diverse caucus. We have uh, members from suburbs outside of big cities. We have members from uh, small, small towns. Uh, and we have to have an agenda that suits all those needs. Uh, you know, there's a, a saying called one size fits all. But when it gets to legislation, there's not always one size that fits all because people have different needs depending on their constituencies. So we look forward to building an agenda of you know values that we've always championed, even from the minority, things that we were able to get done with our last administration. And we also look forward to working very closely with Governor Josh Shapiro, uh, highly anticipating his budget address and, and finding out where we can, once again, uh, build the consensus. Our guest today is Pennsylvania's new Speaker of the House, Joanna McClinton. Uh, Madam Speaker, do you have any legislative priorities? Absolutely. So there have been a lot of uh, bills that have come uh, through our co-sponsorship memo that because our caucus uh, was in the minority, we were not able to accomplish those goals. Uh, we want to work uh, for working families all across Pennsylvania. We want to make sure that we have an agenda that supports, uh, you know, a long overdue raising the minimum wage, 
Um, we want to make sure we support an agenda that provides a uh, full opportunity for folks to be able to have access to organized labor and representation in the union. Um, we are going to be supporting an agenda that ends uh, misclassification of workers, uh, particularly uh, in the construction industry. We know how uh, deadly that can be with uh, some corporate entities trying to you know, cut costs and not negotiate through labor unions and get uh, unskilled workers to do jobs that they do not have the training to do. Uh, we also want to look at our school system. We want to make sure our children, Pennsylvania's children, um, are promised the opportunity to a good school wherever they live. So we've got to uh, work through this budget process that'll be coming up to ensure that our students uh, see the, the real bang and all of our public dollars uh, in their classrooms. Hmm. A couple issues you just mentioned there. Let's start with the last one, uh, school funding. There's just been a Supreme Court ruling having to do with school funding that found that uh, Pennsylvania school funding formula is not fair. And uh, I think a lot of people have known this for years. But what do you do about it? I mean, for a long, long time, Pennsylvania legislators, Pennsylvania leaders have talked about ways to fund schools that are fair, especially for those poorer districts. What do you do about it? And how do you do it so that you don't lose a whole generation of kids? So we have to do it incrementally. We have to really get through that decision and see where are the districts with the highest needs. We started doing uh, two, two budgets ago, uh, level up uh, investments into the districts that had the highest needs, uh, the biggest uh, gaps in funding. And we spent uh, a great deal to make sure that those needs were prioritized. And we realized that, you know, we're in a two year term so it's very possible that we do not have all the capital needed by the end of next year's budget to say, yes, we finally you know, fully funded every school. But we do recognize that we have to take the steps necessary to prioritize the needs so that it's felt and that it's meaningful. It's not just you know, money in a bank, but it actually supports the students' growth right now because you're right. They're in school now, you know, they don't get to to redo K through 12. So wherever they are in their educational system now, we want to make sure that this budget has the types of investments that by the time they get back to school in September, um, that they'll say, wow, you know, I've got a better uh, computer science class or I have, you know, an, an improved science lab or uh, whatever it might be so that they can uh, get brought up to speed. You mentioned minimum wage, too. Uh, do you have a figure in mind? So I do not have a figure in mind today. Uh, when I talk to uh, folks in big business, uh, they all say, you know, nobody makes seven and a quarter anymore. We don't need to change it. But the truth is we do need to change it because we want to encourage employers um, to pay folks decently, um, not to have people working around the clock two jobs at minimum wage just to be able to afford the average rent of $1,200 in Pennsylvania. The Republican Senate, will you'll probably run into uh, some, some issues there, or at least it's challenged there. You have a Democratic governor, Democratic majority in the House, but uh, Republican uh, Senate. There have been some Republicans who have mentioned that they would uh, support a raise in the minimum wage but not necessarily to $15. Is this an area where uh, there could be some compromise? For sure. And, and I know that when you look at New York 
New Jersey, Ohio, West Virginia, uh, Delaware, all of Maryland, all the states that border Pennsylvania have a higher minimum wage. You know, some of them 14, some of them 12, some of them 10. Um, I think it's important for us to take the first step. I am not going to allow the figure to be a discourager because we have to, to develop the, the practice of getting a better outcome. You know, it's not always perfect, but it's a better outcome for people and it's realized. So that will be key for us as we negotiate and go back and forth with our staff, with our, our legislators in the House, in the Senate. We want to make sure that it's something that will pass. We don't want to just say we sent a good bill to the Senate. We want it to be something that the Senate says, OK, we can get our heads around this. You're facing an issue right now that could have an impact on your future and the legislature's future. Democratic Representative Mike Zabel has been accused by two women of sexual harassment. Republicans have called on him to resign. He's taken what amounts to a leave of absence seeking treatment and leaving his committee assignments. Republicans point out the Democrats called for two Republicans to resign who were accused of sexual harassment, but you haven't. Why not? So the first thing I want to say is that I take uh, any allegation of workplace harassment, discrimination, um, very seriously. That is something that is uh, sensitive. It is something that, unfortunately, we know through generations, people did not speak up about it because it was just the nature and culture of workplaces all throughout America. Uh, so, you know, we, my, my, my leadership team, we do not uh, take these uh, allegations lightly. And we also are proud that we supported rules reform uh, in our first full day of session last week to provide a process for any type of allegation on misconduct of a state representative um, to, be, to be investigated by our ethics committee. Um, we did have uh, some private conversations with the member in, uh, that we're discussing, Representative Zabel asking for him to consider resigning because of the distraction, because of the challenges, because it's more than one person. Um, and we are um, respecting his response where he said instead of resigning, he wants to be able to take care of some uh, behavioral health issues that unfortunately um, he is dealing with at the moment. Um, and I want to be clear that in the circumstances uh, regarding prior folks to be called down, they were not the same. Um, it was very different. And um, now that we actually have a process in the House that we sadly did not get one Republican vote on, um, I want to make sure that that process has the time to play out. How are those uh, previous issues that you discussed, uh, how, how are they uh, different than, than the Zabel situation? So I don't know what information you have uh, at your fingertips, but um, folks were actually charged of criminal conduct in those incidents. Uh, one of them, I know, rape. Um, and I don't have all the details right in front of me right here, but I was uh, serving at the time. Mm -hmm. And one uh, person also stated that, uh, well, there were two separate incidents and both of the, the concerns and claims were that the, the people were raped, uh, which is very, very problematic. Sexual harassment obviously is a serious matter, but politically, if Representative Zabel resigned, you would lose your majority, at least temporarily. There are cynics out there who are saying that that's the reason you're not asking for resignation, that you want to maintain that majority. How do you respond to that? 
So uh, asking for resignation doesn't provide me the privilege of taking it. You know, it's a little bit different for state representatives because uh, even as Speaker of the House, the highest constitutional officer in the House, I am not any of the state representatives boss. Um, they don't work for me. You know, there are 202 um, individuals who work for their districts. They work for the voters in their community and the constituency that they uh, took an oath to serve. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic. I can't just demand someone to give me their resignation because they're not my employees. No, but uh, the speaker does, as a leader, does have some input into it and a great deal pulls a great deal of weight. Uh, addressing those cynics who say that one of the reasons you're not asking for resignation is because of the one vote majority. What do you say to them? Oh, I say to them that as someone who spent a great deal of my career um, defending people in a court system that provides for due process, um, due process to me is not just a phrase or a slogan or a part of our constitution. Due process has to be afforded to people. If there is a process that allows folks to be uh, confronted with these types of claims and allegations, and as I stated we just created one uh, last week on Wednesday. Um, that process has to play out and that process has to be respected. And the uh, decision that is made by our ethics committee has to also be respected. So um, the due process should be provided no matter what side of the aisle someone is on. And as stated, we never had a process because for all the years Republicans were in charge in Harrisburg, um, 25 of the last 27, they never created a process for harassment and discrimination to be addressed. Pennsylvania Speaker of the House, Joanna McClinton, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Scott Lamar. Have yourself a great day.